right, go ahead and turn to uh, Psalm 82 there. It's a short psalm. We sang through it, so I'm not going to read through it. Um, we're going to do things a little bit differently, uh, largely because uh, when I say a little bit differently, in a lot of weeks when we look at these psalms, there's a number of figures of speech and things like that. And we don't really see those same figures of speech uh, like we do in some other. There is some imagery. There's this imagery of a gathering of judges in verse 1. And then perhaps also in verse 8. There's this picture in verse 5 of people stumbling around in the darkness. But that's really it as far as sort of the poetic imagery. Uh, so a lot of the meaning of the psalm is tied very closely, I think, to the structure more than it is to the pictures. And so we're not going to spend a great deal of time on number one, because as I said, there's, there's not a lot there. So let's move on to number two. What are some repeated thoughts that maybe you noticed as we were singing or even just glancing down through the psalm? What are some repeated ideas that we see a couple of places in the psalm? Okay, yeah, so if verses 3 and 4, the weak, the fatherless, the afflicted, the destitute, the weak and needy, people who need to be delivered, okay? So that's one cluster of ideas that we see repeated. Jonathan? Judging. Judging, okay? That's, we see that a bunch. Verse 1, verse 2, uh, kind of in verse 3 as well, verse 8, okay? So the idea of judging. We could split that up into a couple of different things. What, what would kind of be the two or three groupings of the ideas of judgment in this psalm? There's God as what? God is the, kind of like the supreme judge, right? So there's that kind of idea in verse 1 and 8. Then there are other judges in verse 1, 2, 5, 6, and 7. There's also the issue of false or perverted judgment. So we've got people, God as judge, others as judges. Then we've got the judgment itself, evil men judging in a wicked way, God judging righteously. So the, the judgments of those two groups. So there's, there's all these different ways that the idea of judge or judgment is used in this psalm. And so, yeah, those, those are kind of the repeated ideas, I think, that we see here. So that then leads us to what I think is the important thing here, which is the structure. Now, um, there's an idea in Old Testament uh, parallelism, poetry, and sometimes even in the New Testament well for people like Paul who are influenced by Old Testament thought. How many of you have heard the word chiasm or chiasm, depending on who you talk to? It's the idea that there's sort of like this half of an X-shaped progression of the passage. Um, so let me give you an example of what this might look like. And it's not neat and tidy in this psalm. So if someone said, I don't see one here, I'm not going to get in a fight with them about it. But it can be a helpful tool to highlight what is the most important point of the psalm. And that is, you have a first phrase and a last phrase that are somewhat parallel. So God takes his stand in the congregation. He judges. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth. Those two phrases seem to be somewhat parallel, right? Then we move to the next verse. Verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? What's that parallel to? Well, it might seem to be parallel to 6 and 7, but that seems to be a description of God's judgment of these false judges. It's probably, potentially, more parallel to verse 5, where the they who do not know or understand or walk about in darkness 
are the judges who are blinded by their rebellion against God. Then you have in the middle part this parallel of weak, fatherless, afflicted, and destitute, what, what is supposed to be happening. If that's the case, then the structure would point to the important idea being what God is calling the judges to do, what they're failing to do, and then the last part of the psalm sort of backs out the consequences, expands on the consequences. The judges themselves are lost and stumbling about in the dark and causing chaos. God's going to judge them. Arise, God, and judge them. And so it starts out and it sort of builds to this middle section there about what God actually wanted them to do. Does that make sense in terms of structure, what might be going on in the psalm here? Okay. We'll come back to that when I go through it and try to sum some of it up, particularly how it ties to John chapter 10, which I'll show you here in a moment. But what kind of a psalm is this, do you think? We saw in the song that they use the phrase, how long. So verse 2, we might say, how long automatically means lament. And that would, would I think, be a reasonable assumption. However, what do we not see that's typical in laments? Or rather, who is usually speaking in the lament? The one who's suffering. This seems to be a third party observing God's interaction with other people. So it's a psalm of Asaph, it's not a psalm of David. Um, so the lament tends to be a personal cry to God on behalf of self or the nation for deliverance. So lament is an option. What's another potential option? Where we see contrast between the righteous and wicked, God intervening according to his righteous character. Yeah, probably more wisdom than praise. So I think the two best options would be either lament or wisdom. I lean toward wisdom, but I could see the case being made for lament. At the end of the day, the point would be this. They're crying out to God for... Someone is crying out to God. Well, describing God, saying here's a problem. Is God going to deal with it? But the, the, here's the, the right way in the middle part of it. That's what leans me a little bit toward the idea of wisdom. Because Psalm 1, here's the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. The tree planted, the chaff that blows away. That's where I think the wisdom idea comes in. So it's kind of blending ideas of lament and wisdom. Okay? Um, what are some truths about God that we see here? What's God's position? What's that? He's the judge. Okay. Uh, and even been in terms of, let's say, elevation. Is he low or is he exalted? He's high and exalted. So kind of the Isaiah 6 kind of picture, right? God is on his throne judging uh, holy, lofty, that sort of idea. What does God desire? Yeah, for these judges to judge righteously. Okay? And when they do not, what happens? What does God do? He judges them. He punishes them, right? And then it sums up with this idea of what? In the very last phrase of verse 8. God possesses the nations, inherits the nations, depending on what translation you're looking at. So God is sort of the ruler over all the nations. They belong to him. They're his. He's carrying out his purpose, all that kind of idea. Okay? What are some truths about us? If, if bad judges are being rebuked, what does that then imply? 
we could be if we're in positions of authority over other people we could be we could be the bad judges that are being rebuked right what's the other possible category in this psalm we could find ourselves in I guess there's technically three categories one the people who are yeah they're not receiving proper justice and then the third category, which is maybe implied, is the one who's sort of standing over here and observing the whole situation, right? So we could be watching. We could be the ones who are judging that God's rebuking. We could be the ones who are receiving perverted judgment. When I say perverted, like unjust rulings and, and being taken advantage of and all those sorts of things. We could be the ones in a position of need. If we are the ones who are the bad judges, what's the proper response? Repentance, Repentance right? If we are the ones who are poor and needy, what should be our response or our expectation? God's going to watch out and deliver us in his time, and we should cry out to him, right? And if we're the one watching, what should we do? Proclaim the truth. Proclaim the truth. Pray. Um, uh, there was one other thing I was thinking. But proclaim the truth. Pray. Sort of like record what's happening for the benefit of others. Something along those lines would be some possible things, depending on which of these groups are, are, are taking place. So, uh, we're going to take a little bit longer, because this passage is short, but John 10, there's a lot going on there. I'm going to try to walk you through this so that you can think what's going on here. So, I put there as the heading, Judge Justly Under God as the Judge, or Before God as the Judge. And here's the idea. You have someone who is supposed to be making right rulings. I was talking to a guy who works in Wayne County as a lawyer recently, and he was talking about the fact that there are judges who basically their campaigns are paid for by defense attorneys. So if they're the prosecutor, the judge, the person that the case is coming before, not the prosecutor, obviously the judge and the prosecutor are two different things, but if the judge is supposed to be making a decision but the defense attorneys basically paid their way to get into office. What's going to happen when the case comes up? Right, but what's going to happen? They're going to be biased. They're going to cut them some slack. You know, it's going to corrupt the system of justice. That's the sort of scenario that's being described here. God is the supreme judge. He is among the, and the word here is actually Elohim, which means God's. So the Nazbi doesn't translate it that way, interestingly. He's, it says he judges in the midst of the rulers, but that word is actually Elohim. So it's actually Elohim takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the Elohim. Clearly it's not God having judgment on himself because verse 2 makes it clear that the ones who are being questioned are judging unjustly. So the idea would be something like this. God is among the gods, put it in quotation marks, and they are as gods to the people because they have the power of life and death and justice or injustice over the ones who are appearing before them. If we correlate this to what we see, for example, in Exodus, you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 21, 22, there's a couple of places where it basically says, bring the person in this scenario before God. But who's actually carrying it out before God? Human judges. Whether it is the ones... Um, I'm thinking chronologically here. I think it's Exodus 18. Jethro comes, talks to Moses, and says, you shouldn't be the one who's doing all these things, sort of division of labor, have multiple judges. 
Uh, those were heads of household and key figures in different tribes were appointed as judges. Someone would come before one of those judges, but incidentally and, and behind the scenes, it's before God. So this slave says, I'm going to serve my master forever. It's before God, but it's also before these human judges. And so that's, I think, why there's this blending of these two ideas here. So, uh, there's a place of judgment. God is the supreme one, but there are also all of these other judges who are involved. But then immediately it turns to this question of rebuke. How long are you going to judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now, partiality, favoritism... I think we could safely say is never a good thing. But it's particularly bad when it's done on behalf of the wicked against those whom God is concerned about, the righteous. So these judges are being reproved. You are supposed to be as God before the people, on behalf of God before the people, showing God to the people, and you're behaving wickedly. Who, what, what, what did God call them to do in the middle section here? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless, the afflicted and the destitute, the weak and needy, and deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Um, what does this look like in our day? I mean, I think a really clear example that's been in current events is if someone, let's say someone in Congress, has the opportunity to support or to oppose the injustice of legalizing abortion, and they choose in that moment to say, I'm going to go in this frenzy and say perverted, corrupt things, like, you know, Nancy Pelosi gets up and she says, on Mother's Day, this is a fundamental right for mothers to kill their children. And there's a whole bunch of other people. And I want to be clear, this is not a Democrat-Republican thing because there are a lot of Republicans that are waffling on this issue. But the important thing that I think we need to recognize is when someone in a position of power perverts justice, God sees it and God cares about it. They are showing partiality to the wicked. Now, I want to be clear. Not everyone who participates in abortion is deliberately wicked. There are a lot of women who've been fed a bunch of lies their whole life. Not really a baby, not really alive. It's better for you if you do this, all those sorts of things. So I'm not so much faulting a woman who, in ignorance, goes and has an abortion. I would fault the ones who say, I'm going to go party and do whatever I want and then just take the easy way out because there's no consequence to me, severe consequence for the child, but there's no big deal for me and I'm going to do this over and over again. I'm going to brag about it. Those people I do fault because they know what they're doing. But the people who make it possible and act as though evil is good and good is evil and are in a position of power where they could actually do something about it, those are the sorts of people that God reproves in a passage like this and says, how long are you going to show partiality to the wicked? What does wickedness look like? Wickedness looks like that guy Gosnell in New York or wherever he was who was chopping up babies and storing them in jars and refuse overflowing in the corners of the hallway and, you know, people say, oh, we shouldn't dramatize it. This was horrific things that he was doing. This was, we want to talk about Nazis. This was Nazi-level genocide stuff in the name of women's reproductive rights. What's God's attitude towards something like that? 
Vindicate the weak. What about the fatherless? There are people who are in vulnerable positions because they have no father, sometimes no mother, because they actually have no parents, they've died, or because they've lost their parents due to um, some sort of circumstance like um, their parents did something illegal, they're in jail, you know, they lost custody of them, all those sorts of things. Here's someone who's fatherless. In Old Testament times, it was probably more your parents died. In our present day, there's a variety of reasons why you might be fatherless, right? And someone who has the opportunity to protect children in places like that doesn't put rules and regulations in place to protect them. They get into situations of abuse or just neglect where someone says, hey, I'll get a lot of money from the state if I foster however many children. I'm not faulting people who foster a lot of children and do it because they love them and they're caring for them and they want to help them. I'm talking about the people who are like, I can make money off of this and I can have a sense of power over them. The ones that like lock kids up in cages and all that kind of nonsense. What is it that these rulers, these judges are called to do? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. No one else will speak up for them. Who's going to speak for them? Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. That's another class of people that tends to get overlooked, right? The people who are going through intense suffering, whether that be because they're refugees or whatever else, the people who are going through the situation of having nothing. Here's the attitude of some people in that situation. Hey, you don't have any money and you need a car, you don't have any credit, so we're going to charge you 20% interest rate on a 30-year-old vehicle and we're just going to bleed you dry of money because you got no other option. Here's a refugee coming in. We're going to close the door. This, this one we're going to let go. That one we're going to kick out for no arbitrary reason other than this country we think we get something from and that country can't do anything for us, so forget about them. That is a perversion of justice. Rescue the weak and the needy. This could be a variety of things, but people who need help, who are in need, and someone in power has an opportunity to do good to those people and refuses to do it and refuses to deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. And that could be a woman who's experiencing domestic abuse. That could be someone who's losing their house because of an unjust landlord. That could be any number of things. And there are people in power, judges, whoever else, and they look at the case and they're like, yeah, we're going to side with the guy who's got lots of money and the slick attorney and whatever else. And we're not going to help the person who's in need. What's the result of this? For the judge, they don't know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. Now, there's probably a little bit of ambiguity here. Is it the judges or is it the people who are being oppressed who are walking about in darkness? I think it's the judges. And here's why I think it. Romans 1 basically says there's this downward spiral of rejecting God and his truth and setting yourself up as authority and defiance and rebellion against God that leads to increasing stupidity and foolishness in the decisions that you make. With the net result, end of verse 5, the foundations of the earth are shaken. And what does that have to do with? There's another passage, I think it's in Psalms, where it talks about the earth sort of itself rebels or, or bears up against the injustice that is being perpetrated on it. I think we even saw that earlier in Isaiah. I can't bring up the passage at the moment, but I think we even saw that earlier in Isaiah. Just this idea of the land itself is ready to like spit them out, right? Because of their corruption, their wickedness, their perversion. So the first consequence, other than the obvious one of the afflicted and the needy and all those groups being neglected and taken advantage of, 
is for the judges themselves. They're just stumbling around thinking they know everything, but just creating chaos in the land. And then there's this rebuke again, verses 6 and 7. Your gods, your sons of the Most High, you're in this exalted position. But you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. You think you're secure? God can strike Ahab at random with an arrow from a soldier who shot at him, not knowing it was Ahab because he wasn't even wearing his own armor, and bring Ahab down. You think you're untouchable because you're up here? God can find you wherever you are. And then this call in verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. And we, we see a phrase like this. We know why call God to intervene. Why not say, hey, everybody go, set this right. Because ultimately God's the one who's going to sort these things out. That doesn't mean we don't work and try to intervene and, and uh, accomplish justice to the extent that we can. But ultimately it is God in the reign of Jesus Christ when he is, comes and establishes his kingdom that is going to correct all of these injustices that we may try to fix but ultimately can't fix most of them. But here's the interesting parallel in the way in which Jesus uses this passage in John 10 that I want you to look at. So turn over your Bible to John 10. Try to get a, a little bit of a running, a running start. Um, start in verse 22 of John 10. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, saying, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them and said, Has it not been written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So what's the context of this passage? John 9, the man born blind is given sight. He's questioned. They don't believe that it happened. They try to come up with all these other explanations. There's this debate, is this the son of man, or does he have a demon, or is he God, and all these sorts of ideas. Then, uh, actually we see that in chapter 10. Jesus gives the, the idea about being the good shepherd and the contrast between himself and false shepherds. Then the people have the idea of, is he has a demon and is insane? Or, well, how can one who has a demon or is insane open the eyes of someone who is born blind? Then the part that we read, and they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. He said, I, I've been showing you, I've been telling you all of these sorts of things. He says, 
I and the Father are one. God keeps his people. I keep God's people. There is security there, but not pride or presumption. All those sorts of ideas. Their response when he says, I and the Father are one, is that they're going to stone him. Why are they going to stone him? For blasphemy, because he's making himself out to be God. So what does he do to undermine their spiritual pride? He says, think about Psalm 82. If in Psalm 82, which is God's word, God called those who are rulers of the people gods, then is it so hard for you to believe that I could genuinely be the Son of God and in fact deserve that title all the more because God himself sent me from him? And here's the irony of what's going on there. They're judges of the people. Jesus rebukes them on more than one occasion for caring nothing for the widow and the orphan, but caring only for how they appear to the people, for perverting justice because of their political alliances with Rome and all these other sorts of things. And yet they have the audacity to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and Jesus quotes from a passage that they should know when he quotes from it what it says, because they know the law. Jesus, I think, is basically saying, hey, you guys are the unjust, unjust judges of Psalm 82. And if you are gods, I'm God. Which means what? Repent or fall under God's judgment. And to the people who are watching... God, not these religious leaders, God's the one that you should be concerned about. And so it's fascinating to see this interplay between Psalm 82 and Jesus' words in, in John 10, the fact that unjust judges were still in power centuries later, the fact that God still had the same attitude toward them centuries later, the fact that Jesus would quote their own words against them, so to speak, to show them the emptiness of their pride and exalting themselves against God and basically saying, you think that you're untouchable? Potentially they're going to think in a short while they've won because Jesus gets crucified. But what comes up over and over again in the book of Acts? You who with godless hands nail Jesus to the tree. Who do you think is going to hold you accountable for that? God is. God is going to vindicate his son, who puts himself in the position of being weak and lowly and afflicted and destitute, God's going to vindicate him against all of these unjust judges who bribe false witnesses to testify against Jesus, who consort with, with Rome to scheme and to plot such that Jesus is crucified. And so the application from John 10 in the way that Jesus uses Psalm 82 is basically the same thing. There's the unjust judges. There's the people that they're afflicting. There's people who are watching who may not have quite the same vested interest in it. And there's God who's ruling over all of it. So, what should we do with something like this? Well, for one, it should give us hope that even though there is injustice in the world, God is aware of it and God's going to deal with it in his time. If we find ourselves to be the ones who are perpetrating it, we ought to repent. Because 
what does the passage say? Those who, in their pride, continue to pervert justice, God will deal with them. There's another passage that says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? If we are the ones who find ourselves to be on the receiving end of that injustice, then I think the words of Peter come to mind. Let none of you suffer as a thief or a meddler or an evildoer. Because there are cases in which we receive injustice or we receive at least punishment and we deserve it. If we're going to suffer injustice, let it be because we are genuinely following after God and not because we've made a mess of things for ourselves by disobeying God. And if we find ourselves in that situation like Jesus, who is being unjustly afflicted, then we can also, like Jesus, entrust our souls to a faithful creator who is able to deliver us and will do so in his time. Was Jesus vindicated against these false judges? Absolutely. He's vindicated by the resurrection, by the ascension, when he returns to reign as king. And so, too, all who trust in Jesus will be vindicated, whether it is now or whether it is, as 2 Thessalonians 1 says, when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who reject the gospel. And for those who are watching, what are they supposed to learn from it? God is the just judge. Evil judges be warned. Those who receive false judgment cry out to God in hope with the hopeful expectation that some of those who are just sort of observing these situations would turn to God and trust in Him. So, what is God calling people to do? He's saying that they ought to judge justly before 